the eighth point of the background. Somewhere along the way, the Calvinistic view of five points came to be summarized under the acronym TULIP. I don't know how. I tried to search again, and I'm not sure that historians can put their finger on when and how it happened. Maybe they can, and I just haven't stumbled across it. If you know, send me a note. But here's what the TULIP stands for. T, total depravity. And we're going to take each one of these. This is what the lion's share of our seminar will be. Give the Bible foundation for each one. U, unconditional election. L, limited atonement. I, irresistible grace. P, perseverance of the saints. Note, a person may embrace these five points because they are biblical while not embracing other things that John Calvin and the Dutch Reformed Church endorsed. For example, one may embrace believer's baptism, like me, and renounce the idea of a state church, like me. So, it's dangerous to call yourself a Calvinist because, goodness, most truly Reformed, as the term is often used, would think a Baptist like me is just a fake Reformed. He's just <laughs> you haven't figured it out yet because John Calvin baptized babies and John Calvin believed in a state church and so uh, you can't be a real Calvinist. I say, fine, I, I don't care about being a real Calvinist. I just want to believe the right things about what I have to believe about. And on these five points, I think the Calvinists got it right and the Armenians got it wrong. But we'll have to see if that is true by looking at the Bible. So let's summarize the differences. Let me pause here and just see if there's one or two more questions. Um, you know what you could do, Marshall? I'm just thinking, um, no, I don't know if this will work anyway. I'm just thinking these 25 questions, the ones that are relating to this point I just made are way down at the bottom off the screen probably, but I don't think there's any way to fix that. If we are chosen, are we protected between our physical birth and spiritual birth? Yes. But um, let, me, let me get to that when we get to it. What would you say is, number six, what would you say is the chief consolation of limited atonement? Going to cover that tomorrow. Number seven, how do we reconcile babies going to heaven if they have, can you scroll that up? Or do I do it? Oh, I do it. <laughs> what? This is an iPad? Um, um, how do we reconcile babies going to heaven if they have inherited guilt and sin without having Christ? Mm, is this the place to answer that? Oh my. Brief answer. I do believe babies go to heaven. Not all Reformed people do. Um, and that does not imply I don't believe they're born with depravity. I think they are born with depravity and with guilt and with sin fullness in their hearts. But there are principles of justice that I would call public justice based on Romans 1. They are without excuse because all they knew, although they knew God, they did not honor Him or give thanks to Him. As though if they had not known God then they would be there would be an excuse. So I, I, I'm seeing a principle there in Romans 1 that in, in the last day when God judges people, He wants His public justice to shine forth in such a way that nobody will be judged who did not know the truth they should have known. And I, I just don't put babies in that category. They don't have any knowledge that they can be held responsible for, which means God will find a way to manage justly through Christ and His blood the contamination and the corruption that they came into the world with. Big, big, huge issue in 60 seconds. But that's, my, that's where I am anyway. Um, is it okay to have what they would normally call simple faith, or is it essential to our growth in growing Christ-like to study on a deeper level? That's a really good question. Is it okay to have simple faith, and I gather he means n not studied, you don't study much, or is it essential to grow in Christ-likeness to study on a deeper level? 
Okay. Um, it is essential for growth that you know God and know Him biblically and experientially more and more. I would not equate that with study, like lots of books, Greek and Hebrew, two hours a day, any of those things you might associate with formalized study. I'm not saying that's essential for godliness. It isn't. There are people who do that, and they're very ungodly people. And there are simple folks who are very godly, but I don't think you'd find very many, if any, very godly people who don't meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. Just simple. They read their Bible. They think about it. They pray about it. And they walk with God. They take risks for God. They subdue their sins. They get to know God in the school of suffering. So, no. I, I would not argue there must be formal or deep or serious study to be very, very godly. All things being equal, which they never are, you would do better to study. All things being equal, which they never are, you would do better. So for me, it has been one of the highest privileges, pleasures, and I think helps of my life in ministry that I have been a student of the Word of God. I do not think others should follow in that path necessarily. You know, not, surely not everybody. One more, and then we'll move on. If God has <laughs> monergistically saved some to the praise of His glory, why not save all? I'm going to save that question till we get to those texts, because there are texts like that, and it's a good question. Okay, let's uh, summarize the difference between the two, Calvinism and Arminianism. What are they, what do they believe on these five points that are different? So here we go. First, on depravity or total depravity. Calvinism, people are so depraved, this is what Calvinists believe, this is what I believe, I wrote this. People are so depraved and rebellious that they are unable to trust God without His special work of grace to change their hearts so that all resistance is overcome and they willingly and gladly believe. Now we're going to spend a whole section tomorrow on the meaning of total depravity. So if that raises lots of questions, good. We're coming back to it. It's a summary. This is a summary statement of the differences. Arminians believe people are depraved and corrupt but are able to provide the decisive impulse to trust God with the general divine assistance that He gives to all people by the Holy Spirit through the Gospel. So never say of a, of a, a Wesley-type Arminian or an Arminius-type Arminian that, that they don't believe in the necessity of the Holy Spirit for conversion. Never say that. That's why I think my father and I could be so close to one another. But what they believe is that this prevenient grace, I'm getting ahead of myself, simply works for all people to remove enough obstacles so that they can freely choose. Whereas Calvinists say, he doesn't just make it possible for them to be self-determining, he moves such that they will believe. So that's, that's the difference. So we believe humans are so corrupt, they will not believe unless they are brought to belief by God. Number two, election. Calvinism says God has chosen unconditionally. Something's missing. Who is revealed? People whose rebellion he will overcome and whom he will bring to faith and salvation. So God has chosen unconditionally people whose rebellion he will overcome and whom he will bring to faith and salvation. Now, Armenians, God has chosen to bring to salvation 
all those whose faith he foresaw but did not decisively bring about. God elects. Armenians believe in election. They believe in election on the basis of faith that God foresees. And the faith he foresees is faith that we produce decisively. The Holy Spirit removing obstacles and then we provide the decisive act that brings us to faith. Atonement. Calvinism says, in the death of Christ, God provided a sufficient atonement for all, but designed that it be effective for the elect. Meaning, that it purchased for them the new covenant promise that God would successfully bring about in his people the grace and faith and perseverance. Grace of faith and perseverance. The atonement brings about faith. It purchases faith. It obtains the new covenant promise of a new heart for the elect. Arminians, in the death of Christ, God provided a sufficient atonement for all and designed that it become effective by virtue of faith. Meaning that the faith itself is not a gift purchased by the cross, but the human means of obtaining the gift of purchased forgiveness. Lots to come back to. Lots to come back to. Because I'm going to wind up saying, let's give you a hint, nobody likes the term limited atonement. And the reason I don't like it is because I believe what the Arminians believe about the atonement. And so much more! So it's not as though, oh, my little limited atonement is in the place of their big expansive atonement. No, 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 no. I totally embrace their big expansive atonement. I'll say that. And then I add, massively, he loved his bride in a covenant way and went after her, paid her dowry, bought her, took her, we'll celebrate with her forever, and the cross secures that. That's added to this. So I'm going to argue, we've got a, Calvinists have a massively bigger atonement. And therefore, unfortunate that we call it limited. Irresistible grace. Irresistible grace, Calvinists say, is God's work in us by which he overcomes our resistance to God and unfailingly brings about the act of saving faith and through that faith infallibly supplies everything we need to live joyfully with God forever. Arminians say grace is not irresistible but is prevenient, that is, it precedes and makes possible saving faith, but we provide the decisive act of will that brings about saving faith through which God supplies everything we need to live joyfully with Him forever. Irresistible grace is also an unfortunate term because almost everybody, when they hear it, thinks it means that you can't resist grace if you believe in it. Everybody resists grace. Every day. And unbelievers resist successfully. So how can I then believe in irresistible grace? All it means is when God decides to overcome that resistance, He will. He will. So it doesn't mean you can't resist. It means God will let you resist. But when he decides, that's over. I'm taking you. You're mine. I will now overcome your resistance. That's why I asked you an hour ago, how do you believe you got saved? That's how I got saved. God did that. He conquered my rebellion. He overcame my resistance. He obliterated my stiff-arming him, broke my arms, and took me for his own. But number five, what do we believe about perseverance of the saints? 
the P. God works infallibly to preserve the saving faith, all preserve the saving faith of all who are truly born again, so that none is ever lost. If we are truly regenerate, we will never be lost. Arminians say God works to preserve his people, but does not always prevent some who were born again from falling away to destruction. If we are truly regenerate, we may still be lost. That's sometimes called eternal security and not having eternal security. So that's a summary of those differences between Calvinism and Any more here, Marshall? Mine doesn't have anything under, just says 34 questions submitted and it's blank. Go up to the top. All right. If Christ's death propitiates the sins of the elect, then how can it be that the elect are under God's wrath before they believe? Somebody's been reading Bruce Ware. <laughs> um, I think I'm going to come back to that tomorrow when we tackle. Don't forget it. How? So here's the here's the issue. If the cross is decisive in propitiating God's wrath, and between my birth and my conversion, I'm under God's wrath then in what sense can the wrath of God against the elect be said to be propitiated here? Either I'm under God's wrath, and it's not propitiated, it seems like, or it's propitiated and I'm not under God's wrath. And I will tackle that when we come to the uh, limited atonement. Free will defined by your terms, if someone gets divorced or sins, is that God causing or influencing that? Or how can we blame Satan for evil if God is the one in control and making him do it? Okay, that, that is exactly the right kind of questions to start answering. I mean, asking once, once you believe that God is sovereign. A thousand questions come up if God is sovereign. So I wrote a whole book called Spectacular Sins. And the point of spectacular sins was to take seven of the most spectacular sins in the Bible and show how God had planned them all. God planned the fall. We know that because Christ was slain for sinners before the foundation of the world. When Joseph was sold into slavery... He said at the end of his life to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He meant my sinful being sold into slavery for good. And the most important one of all, of course, and our whole lives depend on it, is Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, where Luke says, this uh, Pontius Pilate and Herod and the Gentiles and the Jews were gathered together in Jerusalem against your holy servant Jesus to do whatever your plan and hand had predestined to take place. What was that? The murder of the Son of God. The greatest sin in the history of the universe is the murder of the Son of God by crucifixion. Every detail of it is planned by the Father. So yes, whether it's a tsunami that takes out 250,000 people or a divorce in your life or the cancer that your wife has or sexual dysfunction in your marriage or kids that are breaking your heart or a church that has just split again, God rules over those. Satan is also acting. 
Job is the paradigm, right? Satan comes to God and says, have you considered, God says, have you considered Job? And Satan says, yeah, he's prosperous and that's why he serves you. And God says, I don't think so. So go ahead, he's yours, just don't touch him. So he kills his kids. Satan kills his kids and all 10 of them. And Job says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the writer who's inspired adds, and thus he did not sin with his lips. And Satan goes back and God says, see? He says, yeah, skin for skin. You let me have his flesh. He won't be yours anymore. God says, all right, go ahead. And so he strikes him with boils, top of his head. And his wife says to him, curse God and die for goodness sakes. And he says, you speak like one of the foolish women. Shall we receive good at the hand of the Lord and not receive evil? And then the writer adds, and thus he did not sin with his lips. And then you come to the end of the book in chapter 42, and it says, the Lord brought all these things upon Job. So Satan is real, and Satan is active, and Satan is beating up on you big time. And it must madden him to hear me say, he's a lackey. He's a chained lackey. He can't move an inch without God's permission. Not an inch against you or anybody else. God lets his leash out, pulls his leash in. You hear that? So, yeah, Satan is real, Satan is active. There are always two purposers in your life, all the time. I don't think Satan never lets up, God never lets up. There are always two purposers in your life, God and Satan. And the same thing is happening. It might be beauty and peace and health, in which case Satan wants to use it to lure you away from God and make you an idolater of the beauty, and God wants to make you grateful for the beauty. Or it might be cancer, and Satan wants to destroy your faith and say, God is not good, or he wouldn't be doing this, and God wants to test your faith and prove it like fire and metal. God and Satan are always in the same event doing different things. And God is always sovereign. And I'll give you the short version of why that's so hopeful. So who, who, who caused the planes to fly into the Twin Towers on 9-11? Satan big time in there. Oh, he loves, he's a murderer from the beginning. Liar, murderer. So Satan is there killing 2,500 people in an instant. And God would have had to do like this and cause that plane to miss. Just like that. That's all he had to do. And he didn't do it. What, was he asleep? You've got to be an atheist, folks. You've got to be an atheist or believe in the sovereignty of God. It just absolutely won't work to have an incompetent bumbler of a God who cannot see where that plane is going. Even people who are open theists, who don't think God knows the future, he can see. Therefore, God, using Satan, purposed that catastrophe for 10,000 reasons of which you might know two. And 10,000 is a way understatement. Billions and billions of effects have gone out into the world. And God's managing them all. No maverick purposes. They're all under his control. So... You may not, at the end of this seminar, be able to account for, I don't think I can, how God can be absolutely sovereign 
over human choices and over Satan, and those choices and Satan still be accountable and reasonable. But I'm going to show you from the Bible that that is so. God is sovereign. We are responsible. And Edwards made a valiant attempt in the freedom of the will to see how they are coherent. And he may be right in the solution that he, he offered. But I don't feel like I have to have one. I'm a tiny, tiny brain. And God is infinitely bigger. And he may have ways of doing things. He does have ways of doing things that I cannot explain. Um. What would you say if someone who doesn't believe studying or taking a stance uh, in theology that deals with these issues is important? I'd say just listen for the next little while and decide whether you think that's true. I, I began the seminar that way, trying to, trying to say why this is a life and death issue for me personally. I don't mean it's a life and death issue that you have to agree or you're dead. I mean, I, I can't survive the, the, the horrors of this world that don't touch me, and the little horrors that do touch me without believing that God is good, wise, and all-powerful and can therefore turn every horrible thing for good. They're trade-offs, aren't there? If you say God couldn't stop the planes, and therefore he's morally innocent from the tragedy, now you have a God who is unable to take the thousands and thousands of tragedies created by that and do something infallibly good with it. So if I were to, if I were to sit down with a, a woman who lost her husband or a husband who lost his wife or a child who lost both parents, then here now, what, 12 years later, they would say, so, Pastor John, how does your theology help me? They're dead. I would say, my God and your God is able to take that and in your life do something stunning with it because he's God, he's sovereign in ways you can't imagine. That's what you gain. That's what you gain. You have to deal with tragedies and you gain a sovereign God who can work all things for your good. Irresistible grace. Let's go. We're doing got half an hour, and I'd love to make good, a good dent on irresistible grace. Maybe, maybe even finish it. We'll see. Here's what I mean by it. So I'm, I'm doing etulp, all right? Not tulip, but etulp. I'm starting with irresistible grace. Because existentially, according to the way I live and most people live, that's where we meet it. We meet it at age five or six or 20 in college. And we must deal with what's happening to me. What's happening to me right here. That, that election stuff that's just way out there beyond my ability. Right now, I know something's happening to me. And I've got to decide, do I believe or don't believe? And what do I do? And how's it happening that's just totally real. And I think putting that right at the front end is very helpful. So that's why we're doing it this way. God's saving grace can be resisted and will be resisted by all human beings until God acts to overcome the resistance. That's what I mean by irresistible grace. When he decides to overcome your resistance to anything, he can do it without turning you into a robot. He's God. He can do that. Text showing that he can be resisted. Maybe I don't have to do this, but I'll just tick off a few since you all know that, since you do it every day. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. So clearly, the Holy Spirit can be resisted. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God 
by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit is God Almighty dwelling within us, and he can be grieved by things we do. And you may ask, well, why doesn't he stop us from doing them then? He has his reasons. He can. He can. He can stop you from looking at pornography. He can stop you from grumbling. He can stop you from being greedy. He can. And he does. But not always and not fully. And he has his reasons why sanctification is slow. And we say that just because that's what the Bible implies. So he can be grieved. Do not quench the spirit. As for Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. A Calvinist can read that and believe it. All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. You, you find that all over the Bible. We'll see some examples in just a minute. Or I hope it's in tonight yet. So you, you might say, well look, you can't have a God standing there with his hands stretched out like this and expect to call him sovereignly overcoming their unwillingness to come to him. Really. My dad was an evangelist. He stands at the front while we're singing. See at the portals he's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. Can a Calvinist sing that? My, my dad, stand there, tears rolling down his face. Come, would you come? And he's standing there, wanting people to get saved. Would you come? We're singing, everybody's singing. He's standing at the portals, waiting and watching. Get a waiting God here. You don't have a God who's using irresistible grace to make people come. You can't sing that song if you're a Calvinist. Let me ask you this. Your college-age kid just came home for this, and, and he was willing to come to the revival meeting. He's sitting back, tenth row back, beside his mom. She, and my dad's looking this way and looking that way, and this kid's been convicted under my dad's preaching. What's that mom doing? What's she doing? Tell me, just say the word. She's praying. What is she saying to God? She's hearing song. Jesus, in the, in the person of my father, has his arms stretched out like this. Come. That's the way Jesus, come, come. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you and you would not. So come, come. That's Jesus talking through my father's lips and through the lips of the, the song. And what is this mother saying to God? Something like, I mean, there's lots of things she could be saying, but she's saying something like, oh God, please, please, please do it. Please open his eyes. Please make him listen. Please cause him to see. What? Because the way it works is that Jesus and the Father may be standing here saying, come, and the Holy Spirit is going to go there and give him the willingness to obey Jesus. That's why she's praying. What's the point of praying if God doesn't do that? It's not inconsistent for Jesus to be standing at the front saying, come, 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 and us to say to the Father, in the name of Jesus, send the Holy Spirit on my son and cause him to see and want you and need you and go. And the Holy Spirit does that. The reason I ask you at the beginning, if that was you, how you got saved, and that boy comes out, his mother's tears streaming down her face with joy, he comes and he falls down on his knees in front of my dad, confesses his sins, born again. Tomorrow, if somebody asks him, how did you get saved? Is he really going to say, Free will. It's just free will. God showed up, and then I, uh, I decided it was my wisdom, and I overcame my resistance, and I enabled myself to see the light, and I enabled myself to see him as compelling. I've never heard a Christian talk like that. 
They must be somewhere because there's a theology that backs it up. But I, I, ha, I have never heard any Christian talk like that, which is why I, I, I love people more than I love theology. He's going to say, God blew me away. During that hymn, I went into that room a God-hater. My mother, she just pain in the rear end for all these years. And God slew me. He just took it all away. He took, that's the way we talk. That's the way we talk. He took away all my rebellion. He made himself look beautiful. I felt my desperate need for a Savior. All these huge things going on inside of me. You made that happen? You didn't make that happen. So we can resist. Irresistible grace is God's work in us by which He overcomes our resistance to God and unfailingly brings about the act of saving faith through that, and through that faith infallibly supplies everything we need to joyfully enjoy Him forever. So here are the arguments. I've got six arguments for why what I just said is true. And they're all Bible. Okay, There's no, no other sources, just text. So faith and repentance are a gift of God. By grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So the grace and the faith, all as a package, I think, that can be shown in the context, going back to 2, 4, and 5. I know some people try to say the faith isn't the gift, the grace is the gift. It doesn't work. It doesn't work contextually. The faith here is part of the gift. So God is giving the faith. That's what happened to that young man. Romans 12, 3, For though the, through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, do not think more highly of him, do not think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Faith is God's allotment. It's God's gift. This is one of the clearest ones of all. And it's repentance this time. Boy, this is important. If, if you have any, any kind of ministry in your life at all, lay ministry, vocational ministry, the Lord's bondservant, that's you, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient with, when wronged, uh, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance. There's text like that that made me cry when I was 20 years old, 20, 22 years old at, at, at seminary before, during that fall. I really say, oh my goodness. God may grant them repentance. He may not, and he may. Leading to the knowledge of the truth and they may come to know their, to, to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. Boy, if, if you have somebody you think is demonized in your life right now, demonized, somehow really oppressed by the devil, really controlled in some bizarre way by the devil, this is one biblical strategy that's not too weird. I mean, there are weird ones like exorcism. I've been involved in a few weird deliverances and they're scary and you don't want to ask for them, but if God gives them to you, don't be afraid. But this, I, I do every day. So, don't be quarrelsome. Be kind. Teach. Be patient when wronged. Be gentle when you correct others. And through that kind of loving word ministry, God may grant a, what is repentance? Metanoia? Changing of the mind, like the devil was cool and now he's horrible. No, he's not cool anymore, not Satan worshiper anymore. Repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And here's, here's the demonic part that they may come to their senses. It's like they're inebriated, right? You know people like this. Just, they're like they're drunk. They're just totally out of touch with, with, with reality. And they escape from the snare of the devil who had held them captive to do his will. So how do you get people liberated from the devil? Teach them. That's what it says. 
teach them and love them and pour the truth on them and don't be quarrelsome with them. And the decisive actor is God. May grant. So repentance is a gift. None of you repented on your own. One of the reasons somebody, the question here was, do you need to think about these things? Are they that important? If you don't know that, what are you going to praise him for on Sunday morning with regard to your conversion? How are you going to lift your hand and say, thank you, thank you, thank you? You're not. You're not. You're going to have, you're going to have a, a mental framework that's resisting that. Well, don't thank him because you made the decisive choice. You made the decisive choice. Of course, you'll thank him for the cross and for, for, for offering, and, but you will not thank him for being the decisive breaker inner on your life. And I want you to praise him for what he ought to be praised for. So it's a gift. That's argument number... Oops, we still got more. I'm going to skip those. Oh, here's the one I said about the Old Testament. This is just so fascinating. I want you to see it because... There's a paradigm of how to read the Bible here and how to understand conditional statements uh, in relation to God's sovereignty. So here we are. Hezekiah, Old Testament king, is calling for repentance because the people are in a mess. And he says, if you will repent and turn, God will come to you. So it's conditional. All right, let's read that. Oh, people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, that he may turn that... That, that he may turn again to the remnant of, uh, of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Do not now be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves. He's calling. like he, Here at the portals, he's waiting and watching. He's calling. Come on. Yield yourselves to the Lord and come to his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever, and serve the Lord your God that this is the condition. This is what will happen. That his fierce anger may turn away from you. You see what he's saying? Come on, repent, because if you repent, God will respond. And people think Calvinists can't talk like that. Right? Because Calvinists think God's always running ahead, and so you can't say, if you do this, God will do this, because that sounds to put you in the driving seat. See? But we're Bible people. We're Bible people. That's the way you should talk. For if you return to the Lord, now it's an if, not a that, but if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is a gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return. You got if and that you got all those indications that you got to move here or God's not moving. Right? That's what it says. You must do this or God won't respond with redemption and with deliverance. And that is the way you should preach. I remember, just before I came to Bethlehem, I preached at the Baptist General Conference annual meeting in Omaha, Nebraska, summer of 1980. Okay? Now I'm a seven-point Calvinist. And I was preaching to these several thousand people that had gathered together. And a guy came, I was on Hebrews. And a guy came up to me and says, well, well, John, you know, you're, you're about to become pastor at Bethlehem. I just want to give you some warning. Your Arminianism might be a problem in this conference. That's what he said. <laughs> because I preached like that. If you will come, he will bless you. If you will come, he will save you. Now, next slide. Still, you see this, make sure you see. This is uh, verse, we're up to verse, where is it, 8, 9. We're up to verse 9. So now we're, verse 10. So, the couriers went from city to city through the country with, with the king's message. You've got to repent, so God will bless you, save you. So the couriers went from city to city through the country of Ephraim, Manasseh, as far as Zebulun, but they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. So God's summons to repentance through Ezekiah is being rejected. 
Verse 11, however, some men from Asher and Manasseh and Zebulun humbled themselves or literally were humbled, didn't matter, and came to Jerusalem. In other words, they responded. They obeyed. They fulfilled the condition. They used their wills, humbled themselves and came. Verse 12, the hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes had commanded. Now, look very carefully at the word also. What is also referring to? Let me show you something. my Bible program. See that word right there? Some of you Hebrew guys, tell me what that means. It means also. Okay? Just You needed to see that. Because everything hangs on that word. The hand. Stay with it. The hand of God was also in addition to verse 11, right? That's what it means. Some men from Asher, I'm at verse 11. Some men from Asher and Manasseh and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. And also the hand of God was on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king had commanded. So that means he was also in the Asher and Manasseh and Zebulun men, which means this didn't come out of nowhere. God had given them the heart to do. So now we're back in the revival meeting with Jesus at the front saying, come, 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 and the Holy Spirit settling down powerfully on that young man's life, changing him so he comes. That's what's going on here. So whenever, this is just so vastly important, whenever you read in the Bible, if you humans will do this, I, God, will do that, don't conclude that doesn't mean he doesn't intend to enable you to fulfill the condition. That's because he did right here. He, he enabled them to fulfill the condition he was giving through Hezekiah. Hezekiah says, if you will humble yourself, if you will turn, then God will bless you which makes it sound like it's all yours to do. It's not. God will circle around. I'll draw it for you. Where's my super-duper rubber tip iPad marker? So here's, here's God. I thought about this earlier today. I'm not making this up. I drew it so I knew I could do it. Here's Hezekiah. And here's you. Okay, I'm just letting you be Judah just so it gets relevant. And God says to Hezekiah, tell them they must repent. Okay, it goes like that, right? Hezekiah, my people are rebellious. I'm not going to bless them while they're rebellious. So you tell them they must repent. So Hezekiah delivers that horizontal word in verses 6 through 9. Now, what we want is for this, this you here, a little hard around it. I didn't, I didn't get this figured out very well. We want that heart to go back like this, to, to that word and say, we, you are so right. We are so bad. And we are sorry. And we repent. And we turn. And we want God. And that's just not going to happen unless God does this. Boom. And that's what verse 10, verse 11 and 12 says he did. He gave them one heart to do what the king and the princes had commanded. So that little paradigm there, God tells a preacher, Bill Piper, you go preach to that church, 10th Baptist, or whatever, and tell them they must repent. Or Jonah, Nineveh, tell them they must repent. And my dad could say, why is this so hard they never would repent? Like Jonah, you know. And then he just starts preaching. 
And a mother who's been praying for 20 years has the bowl full in heaven of her 10,000 prayers. And God says, just one more and I'll pour it out. She prays one more and he takes 10,000 prayers and goes, and this kid goes, whoa, where'd that come from? And he's, he's saved. He's saved. And these people were, were saved. Argument number two. We can't come to Christ unless God draws us. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. If the Father gives me to the Son, I go to the Son. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words... Let me go back here. I had a student in... I taught at Bethel for six years. 1974 to 80. And uh, I had a lot of opposition from the students when it came to things like this. And I remember using John 6.44 one day in class to argue that nobody can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And, and, and a fellow named Bill, very, very bright, he went on to become a, an Episcopalian priest. He just raised his hand. He said, I think, I, think, I think he draws everybody. So that's a true statement. Nobody can come to me unless the Father draws me. He draws everybody. That's the first time I'd ever heard anybody say that. I thought, okay, I'll think about that. That would be a good Wesleyan, Armenian, prevenient grace is given to everybody, and nobody can come to him unless the Father does some drawing, but he doesn't draw them decisively. Okay, now I went home, and, and, I, and this is what you should always do. You should always read the rest of the chapter. So here's what happens. We're now, now we're down at verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him, Judas. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you, no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him from my father. And I thought, that, that argument won't work. This is Judas. This is Judas. J Jesus is saying, the reason Judas hasn't come is because the father hasn't drawn him. That's what he's saying. He knew who would not believe. He knew who would betray him. For this reason, I have said to you, no one can come. It's Judas is, my, is, is exhibit A. Judas does not come to me because he can't come unless it is granted to him from the Father. God could have saved Judas. It's like he saved you. You weren't any easier to save than Judas. Dead is dead. And he didn't. He was a son of perdition. It was already decided long ago that he would not be saved. And God wasn't obliged to save him. Argument three. God's effectual calling. By the way, these slides we will put all of them on the website tomorrow night. So if you just want to relax and think and, and, and draw pictures and, 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 I mean, that helps some people to think, not that you're bored. <laughs> so don't, don't fret. You, you can have them all, and, and uh, we'll put them up for you to download. So PDF. Jews ask for signs. Greeks search for wisdom. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, he's Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. God's effectual calling overcomes resistance. Now, how do I get that from this text? So you've got two groups of people. You've got 
Greeks, and they're seeking for wisdom. Um, you got Jews, and they're asking for signs. And we preach, instead of signs and wisdom, Christ crucified. To which the Jews respond by stumbling over it like a block. And the Gentiles respond by calling it foolishness. But there's another group of people among the Jews and among the Gentiles who don't respond in either of those ways. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, they look at Christ crucified and say, this is the power of God. This is the wisdom of God. Like the kid, he walked in, and when he walked in, he was saying, this is stupid, it's foolish. He's stumbling over it. And he walked out saying, my Lord and my God. What made the difference? The call of God did. Well, what was that? It, it, Billy Graham stands up in front of 50,000 people. My father stood up in front of 500 people. And they both called with words. Come, come to Jesus. Come, everyone who comes. He will not cast you out. Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, you who have no money. Come, buy and eat. That's the general call. And thousands of people don't do it. All of these people did it. The called here say power of God and wisdom of God. So theologians have always distinguished between the general call of God that I'm issuing right now, that everybody can hear, and the internal effectual call of God, of God in and through the Word, saying, come. Like to Lazarus in the tomb, Lazarus, come forth. Now that was the kind of call that makes this text work. The call created the response. Lazarus was not dead after the call. The call raised the dead. Lazarus, come forth. So, back to my first question. How did you get saved? Answer, God said, rise from the dead. And you did. That's how you got saved. All of you who are saved got saved that way. The call might have been through the Bible reading, might have been through radio, might have been through Billy Graham, might have been through your mother at her knee when you were six. It might have been through reading a book. The general call was happening in all those ways, and God Almighty decided, now's the time, and he says, live, John Piper. Live, you dry bones. Argument number four, the new birth enables us to receive Christ. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Whoever believes has been born of God. It really is a perfect tense here. Has been born of God. So prior to your believing, you were born. That's how you know you were born. <laughs> You've heard the joke if somebody comes up to you and says, are you alive? He said, yes. How do you know? You don't say, well, I've got my birth certificate here somewhere. Here it is. The doctor signed it. He signed it. January 11, 1946. Nobody does that. They say, I'm breathing. I'm alive. So if somebody asks you if you are a new creature in Christ, you don't fish out your card from the Billy Graham meeting, do you? You don't. You, you say, I love him. I trust him. He's my God. And once he was stupid and stumbling block and foolishness and boring. And now he's everything to me. I'm alive. I didn't make myself this way. I've been raised from the dead. That's how I know, that's, that's how I know I was born again.
Argument five. The new covenant promises grace that will triumph over resistance. So here's the first covenant, Mosaic covenant. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land. The great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders, yet to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to know or eyes to see or ears to hear. The old covenant mainly left people without the supernatural aid to fulfill the conditions given in the law. But there was a promise given in this book. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Someday, there's a period coming when God will circumcise your heart, that God, according to the new covenant, God will take out the heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh, and He will write the law on your heart, and you will love God. That's coming. Um, these are all these new covenant promises that I just referred to. I'm going to wrap this up with number six. Who then can resist His will? So we're talking about irresistible grace. Romans 9, we'll stop with this. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part that he would choose Jacob and not Esau? By no means, for he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. In other words, I'm free. I'm the one person in the universe that's totally free to do as I deem best. So then it depends not on human will or exertion. It depends not on man who wills or runs, not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then <clears throat> he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Our questions are not new, are they? For who can resist his will? So there's the question. Clearest in all the Bible is right there. Who can resist his will? You just said he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whom he wills. If God is that sovereign, then why does he still find fault? Because nobody can resist his will. To which Paul says, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Now, answering back in that verse is a negative word. There are some questions that are perfectly legitimate to God. And there are some questions that he's very offended by. When God said to Zechariah, your wife's going to have a baby, even though she's old, he said, how can I know that? She's old. And the angel said, you won't talk for nine months, buddy. He didn't like that. He didn't like that question. And when he said to Mary, you're going to have a baby before you ever have sex, she said, how could that be? And he answered her. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the Most High will overshadow you and the child to be born in you will be of the Holy Spirit and you will call him the Son of God. Why did, why did he like her question and not Zechariah's? And the answer was her attitude. I am your handmaid. Whatever you say. And Zechariah's got his back up. Can't happen. And this man here has his back up. I, I could argue this from, from the word, but I think you can see it. But who are you? Who are you, old man, to answer back to God in, with this attitude? Because he does go on and give some explanation. Has the potter 
no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, endured with much patience the vessels prepared for wrath, for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy? What if that? Would you have an answer for that? Would you be able to talk back to that? In other words, if God deemed it wise and good that he would display the riches of his glory more fully by ordaining that there be those who are lost, then who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? And, and what you have to maintain at this point, and, and then I'll stop, is that when that happens, when there are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, he does it in such a way that those vessels of wrath are really guilty, really responsible, and in the last judgment will not have any objection to raise against God. And if you say, I don't see how you can do that. Say, well, you don't need to say how. You just need to see what the scripture says and embrace. So that's pretty much the end. I'll, maybe I'll do this tomorrow. I'll do the conclusions and we'll sum up. We'll sum up. Uh, Irresistible grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, these are weighty matters, and for some, I'm sure, in this room, this is newer to be looking at all these texts piled up together. Now, let's pray that we would be steady in our listening, that we would be praying earnestly, Oh God, give me light. God, protect me from error here. Guide Pastor John. Let him only speak the truth and help me to be discerning. So God, teach us now this night and bring us back together in the morning, I pray, to go further. In Jesus' name, amen.